welcome back to another episode of the Insurance versus History podcast, where we examine how insurance changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. Once again, I'm Meredith, your host, and I have both a bachelor's and a master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. You want to know how insurance works? History can help. We'll learn a little history and a little insurance, but I promise to make both interesting. It's safe to say that most people know at least a little about the sinking of the Titanic. Maybe you know a little story about Jack and Rose and some jewelry, though of course all that was made up by James Cameron. As I was starting to put this research together, I realized that some listeners might be thinking I have something for Leo DiCaprio, since this is the second podcast episode mentioning a movie he starred in. But what actually prompted this podcast was a viewing of the 1958 black-and-white classic A Night to Remember. While I did watch Titanic again for this podcast, just to refresh my memory, I personally think Night to Remember is better. The 1958 version, though, just to be clear, there's more than one. The story of the Titanic today is really going to get us into a lot more specific insurance information that we've talked about up until this point. That's because it's 1912, and by now, insurance is generally well accepted by most people, and the insurance available is also far more sophisticated than it had been just 50 years prior. And there's a lot of good stuff here. I think you'll find it interesting. But back to the actual Titanic. So the construction of the RMS Titanic was completed in 1911 at a cost of about $7.5 million by a company called Harland & Wolf. That doesn't seem like a lot of money until you translate it into today's dollars, which would make the construction cost more like $400 million. And yes, that's a lot of money, but even today, this would be considered a bargain if you look at the price tags of today's modern cruise ships. Titanic, however, was the largest ocean liner built as of 1911, and so was considered a real achievement. On April 12, 1912, Titanic set out on its first Atlantic Ocean voyage from Southampton, New England, with a final destination of New York City. The ship was far from full, as April was considered a slow time for ocean travel. Titanic could hold more than 3,500 people, including the crew, but for this voyage, there were 2,224 people on board. The route that Titanic took from Southampton, England, to New York City was known for ice, and 1912 had been particularly bad for ice, but the captain had few concerns. The wireless operators on the ship passed messages back and forth between Titanic and other ships at sea, letting Titanic know of any hazards along the route. In all, Titanic received something like six warnings about ice from other vessels or wireless station locations, but by the time the lookouts spotted the iceberg, they were unable to turn the ship quickly enough to avoid a collision. The iceberg ripped into the side of the Titanic, creating water entry points all along the right side of the ship. While Harland and Wolfe had designed a ship that could stay afloat if four forward compartments were flooded, the iceberg had damaged six. It was entirely inevitable at that point that the ship would sink, and sink quickly. Titanic sent out distress signals using their wireless telegraph system and were able to contact the RMS Carpathia, which unfortunately was about four hours away. There actually was a closer vessel, something you won't remember from the movie Titanic because Cameron scrapped this fact entirely. 
a ship called the SS Californian. The Californian was only 20 miles away and had halted its progress in the evening of April 14th due to concerns about ice. But when the Titanic sent out distress signals to nearby vessels, the wireless operator on the Californian had gone to bed for the night. This story is much more complicated than my quick summary here, but if you're interested, I'll drop links in the show notes. As the captain of the Titanic realized that the ship would sink, the crew began to muster the passengers into lifeboats, starting with women and children, mainly from the first-class and second-class passengers. As you probably already know, there were not enough lifeboats on board to hold all the passengers and crew. At 2.20 a.m., the ship sank a little over two hours after hitting the iceberg. More than 1,500 passengers and crew were still on board. The RMS Carpathia, a ship that had received the Titanic's distress call, had set out immediately to the sinking vessel. Unfortunately, they were too far away when they received the message and only made it to the location of the Titanic almost two hours after it had sunk. They were able to rescue most of the people in the lifeboats. Some had succumbed to cold or other injuries, but those who were in the water had long perished. In all, only 705 people survived. From any standpoint, this was a disaster of immense proportions. How could it have happened? Shipbuilding had progressed so far from where it had been even 50 years prior, and the thought was that the newer ships were all but unsinkable, especially Titanic. In addition, the wireless telegraph was supposed to have revolutionized the marine industry, and yet it couldn't stop the loss of the largest, most expensive vessel built or save the lives of 1,500 people. The sinking of the Titanic also meant a huge blow to the insurance industry between the loss of the ship, the loss of life, the loss of property, and the injuries to those who survived. The claims were immense and complicated. But let's take a step back and talk a little bit about the loss of the ship itself and what that meant to insurance. If you listen to my episode about coffee, I talked about the evolution of marine insurance, which is the insuring of vessels that traveled through the water like the Titanic, and why it was so risky. Basically, you were insuring something that moved, a ship, and while you knew where it started out and where it was supposed to go, most of the time you really had no idea where it actually was at any given moment. This was a really unique level of risk for insurance as compared to Insuring a home or a shop, it's a huge amount of uncertainty, and an ocean vessel was very, very expensive. But in the late 1890s, scientists had started experimenting with sending messages via radio waves, which eventually became the wireless telegraph. The first ship was outfitted with a wireless telegraph in 1905, and by the time of the Titanic, the wireless telegraph was pretty standard on most ships. It's hard to truly explain just how revolutionary this was for insurance. Now, for the first time, not only did you know where the ship departed from, you knew where it was at any given time. But, just as with the RMS Titanic, just knowing where the ship was, unfortunately, did not eliminate all the risks from insuring it. But the existence of the wireless telegraph significantly decreased the uncertainty around insuring marine vessels. So it should not surprise you in the least that one of the most significant supporters of the development of this wireless technology was Lloyd's of London, which was still the primary insurer of marine risks, just like it had been back in the 17th century when individuals met at Lloyd's Coffee House in London to hammer out agreements to insure merchant ships. Lloyd's partnered with Guglielmo Marconi, an inventor and the owner of the Marconi Wireless Telegraph and Signal Company, 
and set up wireless transmission stations in locations in both England and Canada. Combined with the wireless locations on the ships, now there was a way to communicate with locations on land and provide information during marine voyages in real time. Insurance for the win. But again, just because you have less certainty, and in theory that should also reduce the risk of a loss, it doesn't reduce it entirely. After the Titanic sank, there were a number of different kinds of insurance that kicked in and a number of different issues that were raised. In regards to insurance claims and its coverage, we can divide the issues into three categories. The ship and its contents, the life insurance of the people who were killed, and whether or not the White Star Line had a legal and financial responsibility, not just for the people who died, but for the families of those people as well as the people who had survived but suffered injury, both mental and physical. The easiest one to start with is the ship insurance itself. As mentioned earlier, the Titanic was the largest, most expensive ship ever built. Insuring the Titanic would, as a result, be quite complicated. No individual insurance company was large enough or brave enough to take on the entire financial risk of a total loss of such an expensive vessel. As a result, getting insurance for the Titanic meant that the owners of the Titanic absolutely had to go through the Lloyd's marketplace to find enough companies and individuals to insure their ship. Since Lloyd's is based on what we call a subscription model, where many different insurance companies join together to insure a risk, it was the only solution. White Star, the owner of the Titanic, could not directly approach the underwriters at Lloyd's, as it was required by Lloyd's that they employ someone called an insurance broker. It's the same way today. You can think of the broker as a kind of middleman. They have formal relationships with the underwriters at Lloyd's and are able to put together what we call a slip which is a list of all the different insurance companies and individuals who commit to insuring a particular risk. And this is an extremely simplified explanation. The broker White Star used was called Willis Faber & Company. This broker still exists today as Willis Towers Watson. And if you've ever been to Chicago and seen the Sears Tower, now called the Willis Tower, that tower is named after Willis Towers Watson. Willis Faber was contracted by White Star to obtain what's called hull and machinery insurance for the Titanic. Hull and machinery insurance, very simply, is insurance for ocean marine vessels that protects against damage to the ship caused by certain things while the ship is actually in transit on the water. So not while it's sitting docked, for example. This can include a laundry list of potential threats, but for the purposes of what we're talking about here, it's enough to know that hull and machinery insurance would cover the cost of repairing the damage to the ship caused by its collision with the iceberg, if indeed the Titanic had not sunk, and would cover the total loss of the Titanic if it sank as a result of the collision with the iceberg, as it of course did. Willis Faber started to approach the underwriters at Lloyd's on the 9th of January, 1912, and it took only three days to find enough underwriters at Lloyd's to participate in order to provide the requested limits. The coverage was for one year and provided one million pounds worth of insurance coverage. That would be approximately five million U.S. dollars of coverage. If you've been paying attention, you will immediately notice that the cost to build the Titanic was seven and a half million U.S. dollars, and the amount of insurance was only $5 million. So there's a mismatch here. This is pretty common with very large risks. 
In the case of the Titanic, White Star felt confident enough that the ship would never incur a total loss, aka it would not sink, and so they were willing to take a chance and insure it for less than it was worth and hope that they were right. If they were wrong, of course, they would be out the $2.5 million difference between the cost of the ship and the insurance policy. However, even if they had wanted to insure the Titanic for the entire $7.5 million value, they likely could not have done so. The insurance policy for the Titanic was the largest marine placement ever and was 20% of the total capacity of the entire insurance market at the time. It is impossible to imagine a situation now where any one risk could take up 20% of the entire capacity of the insurance marketplace. Providing this coverage took 12 different insurance companies and more than 50 Lloyd's syndicates. This was literally every single marine underwriter at Lloyd's and almost all of the insurance companies at Lloyd's that wrote marine insurance. The premium was, even at that time, considered quite low, and White Star was charged 7,500 pounds for this coverage, which is about $38,000 in U.S. money. I'm sure there were some people that wanted to insure the Titanic just because it was such a high-profile risk. It's a thing that happens today. It's a thing that I've even done. But even then, there were some companies who took a pass. For example, and in a move that should sound very familiar to many underwriters out there, a London company called British Dominions Marine did not participate in insuring the Titanic because they believed that the rate being offered was too cheap. You should know that modern rates for cruise ships are actually considerably lower than the rate that was charged for the Titanic, adjusted for inflation, of course. Lloyds had seen several other major ship tragedies in the recent past, but one of the biggest reminders of how wrong maritime losses could go was on full display at Lloyds for everyone to see. Way back in 1799, a ship called the HMS Lutine made a trip from England to Germany packed with gold and silver, and even possibly the Dutch crown jewels. All of this was insured by Lloyds. The HMS Lutine hit bad weather and was destroyed, killing all but one of the 240 people on board. And all of that treasure is still missing. However, the bell from the Lutine was found by divers in 1858, which was almost 60 years after the wreck, and it now hangs prominently at Lloyd's. It's rung when a ship successfully sails into port or as confirmation that a ship has been lost. That Lutine bell was actually rung for the Titanic on April 15th, three days before the Carpathia even reached New York with its survivors. When the bell was rung, all trading at Lloyd's halted. The underwriters at Lloyd's knew the Titanic had sunk and was lost. Not everyone else in the world really understood this until the Carpathia came into port in New York on April 18th. While the wireless system established by Lloyd's and Marconi worked perfectly, the people transmitting and interpreting the messages might have been the weak links here, or maybe it was just desperate optimism or denial. When the Carpathia sailed into New York on the 18th of April, three days after the sinking of Titanic, there was still confusion among newspapers as to what exactly had happened and whether or not the RMS Titanic was still afloat. However, not only did Lloyd's and the insurance markets know what had happened, the White Star Line had no confusion about the sinking whatsoever. They had already sent out ships to retrieve the bodies that could be found. If you've seen any of the movies or done any reading about the Titanic, you probably remember that the owner of the White Star Line 
J. Bruce Ismay, was not only on the Titanic, but he was one of the men who managed to get a seat on one of the lifeboats and survive. So, of course, I think it's safe to say that he was communicating with company employees on shore quite soon after being rescued and put on board Carpathia. They were able to recover only 328 bodies. Some were buried at sea, and others were brought back to Halifax for burial. But despite having so much knowledge about what had happened, Ismay did not, and no one at White Star did that I can see, they made no effort to inform the press or, I mean, not to be a little bit crass here, but they made no effort to control the narrative of the story at all by managing the information that was given to the news media. They instead let them think whatever they wanted. And in particular, I'm actually kind of offended that they apparently did nothing to manage the expectations of the families of the crew as almost 700 crew members had perished. In true insurance fashion, though, the maritime underwriters at Lloyd's were more savvy to the situation before that lutein bell was even rung. The first on-land station that received the SOS messages from the Titanic was called Cape Race, and it was in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Almost immediately after the Cape Race messages became known on April 14th, and as soon as the Lloyd's trading floor opened for the day on April 15th, underwriters at Lloyd's began trading something called overdue insurance. We haven't really talked about reinsurance and what reinsurance is yet, but this is a type of reinsurance. There was a story in the Chicago Record-Herald on April 16th that summed up the situation. Exciting scenes were witnessed at Lloyd's underwriting rooms yesterday. Insurance losses in the last six months have been unparalleled in the history of Lloyd's and liners of the biggest class. Since the Olympic collision, both the Delhi and Oceana have been wrecked, and now comes the disaster to the Titanic. When business opened, there was a rush to reinsure. 50 guineas per cent was charged, and this rapidly rose to 60, but later dropped to 25 on news that the Titanic was being towed to Halifax. It is understood that there was no specie aboard the liner, but large insurances have been written on diamonds and other valuables in its cargo. Overdue insurance is pretty much what it sounds like. The ship is overdue, and there's a concern it might not ever arrive. If you were an underwriter at Lloyd's that felt really confident that the Titanic didn't actually sink and that it would actually come into port at New York, you would approach those underwriters who had limits exposed, underwriters who had written insurance on the Titanic, and you would offer them the opportunity to sell off some of that exposure to you, at a premium, of course. But it would be significantly less money than what that insurer would pay out if the Titanic had sunk after all. Incredibly, White Star was reimbursed for the loss of the hull within seven days of the sinking and fully paid on the loss of cargo and contents which is a coverage I didn't really get into, within 30 days. The entirety of that policy was paid out within 30 days. This would never happen now. Think of something like the wreck of the Costa Concordia, which ran aground in 2012. That took years to resolve, just arguing the various legal issues alone, not to mention coordinating payouts between insurers and companies reinsuring the insurers. But, and this is a huge but, was the sinking of Titanic a complete scam? I mean, this is nuts, but I could not believe the number of conspiracy theories about the Titanic, which range from whether or not J.P. Morgan deliberately sank the Titanic to kill off his business rivals and stop the creation of the Federal Reserve, to whether or not there was a mummy on board that cursed the Titanic to sink, to, well, insurance fraud. 
Those who believe this conspiracy theory about insurance fraud say that someone switched the Titanic with an older White Star ship, the Olympic, and that the ship that sank was really the Olympic. The Olympic was built around the same time as the Titanic and was completed in 1910, which was a year before Titanic was completed. According to the conspiracy theory, the Olympics supposedly had been damaged and wasn't in great shape, and rather than paying to repair the Olympic, White Star disguised the Olympic as the Titanic and then knowingly let it sink to collect the insurance. None of this makes any sense, but that's kind of how these things go, right? I guess it's small consolation that there appears to be no conspiracy theories that fewer people died or that no people died. At least I didn't see any. For those people who had perished on the Titanic, many of them also had their own insurance in the form of life insurance. In 1912, life insurance in the United States was now pretty common for individuals of a certain economic standing. And even for those who were not, it was often seen as a hedge to pay for funeral expenses, at the very least for those who maybe didn't have a lot of money. Most of the life insurance claims were actually paid in America by American insurance companies mainly because the majority of the first-class passengers were American. I don't have a solid figure for the amount paid out, but we do know of the amounts of some of the individual payments. Since there were so many wealthy people on board, Guggenheims and Astors among them, it's not surprising that many of the life insurance payouts were quite large. For example, Marion Thayer and her son had survived Titanic, but her husband, a railroad executive named John, did not. John's life insurance company, Traveler's Insurance, still around today, paid Marion about $120,000. That would be something like $3.2 million today. Another large payout was to the family of Herbert F. Chaffee. His wife survived the sinking, but he did not, and the life insurance policy taken out in his name paid out about $146,000, or around $3.9 million today. Obviously, there were also a number of much smaller policies paid out to others. For example, Prudential Mutual Insurance, which is a British company that provided life insurance, paid out over 300 life insurance claims related to Titanic. While the insurance for the loss of the Titanic itself, accepting that crazy conspiracy theory, and the life insurance payout seem quite straightforward at first glance, the question of White Star's liability in regards to the sinking of the Titanic and what White Star owed to the survivors and the families of those who died is where things start to get really interesting. On the one hand, there were the very tangible losses that could, in a way, be quantified. The passengers' clothing and jewelry, any goods transported by the Titanic that were intended for sale, and even injuries to survivors that needed reimbursement for medical treatment. These are things that can, to some extent, be documented and assigned dollar value. On the other hand, there was the very intangible pain and suffering of those who survived and the families of those who did not. What was White Star's responsibility to those people? Was White Star considered totally or partially responsible for the sinking of the Titanic and the resulting loss of life? Those are actually two very separate issues. And if White Star was found to have some sort of financial responsibility for these things, what would that mean for other companies that provided ocean transportation now and in the future? On the one hand, it's no surprise that since there were a lot of people with money involved, that there would be lawsuits. On the other hand, it was 1912. I personally didn't think of people in the U.S. in 1912 as being litigious and quick to sue as, say, they are now. 
I can't find a record of the first lawsuit, but we do know that by October 1912, White Star was concerned enough about the number of lawsuits they had already received that they filed a legal petition in New York. This petition argued that because of the existence of an 1851 law entitled An Act to Limit the Liability of Ship Owners and for Other Purposes, that White Star's liability in the sinking of the Titanic was either very limited or non-existent. This law is really something else, and it is still in effect today. In fact, after the Deepwater Horizon spill in 2010, the owners of the Deepwater Horizon argued that this law applied to that disaster. The law has two parts. In the first part, if an event was found to be a totally unavoidable accident, the ship owners cannot be found liable at all, not for injury, loss, or even death. In the second part, if the ship's captain or the crew made an error that led to the event but the ship's owners were unaware or had not ordered that action taken, then the ship owner's liability was very limited. I mean, we're talking about the total amount of money paid in passenger fares, or the total amount paid for the cargo that was on the ship, or even the value of anything salvaged from the ship. That third thing, the value of salvaged items, is going to come up in just a second, and it's really going to make you scratch your head, or it might even make you throw something. White Star called the sinking an inevitable accident in these court documents, and further, they argued that the only way anyone should be able to claim anything against White Star was if someone could definitively prove that the captain did something deliberate to cause the sinking and that the ship's owners knew about it, right? Good luck with that. And then they took the even more insulting position that if anyone was able to prove that this was the case, that they were partially liable under this 1851 law, that the value of the salvaged items would be the maximum amount they would be required to pay out. Listeners, what was left of the Titanic after it sank? Lifeboats. They had the lifeboats assessed and argued that the value of the lifeboats, something like $94,000, was the limit of the money they should pay out. The sheer insult of that to me, using the value of the thing that saved the lives of 705 people, not to mention that the lack of lifeboats resulted in the deaths of so many others, it just absolutely blows my mind. By the way, if you're interested, all of these wonderful legal documents are available online in the National Archives. I'll drop the link in the show notes. It is worth a peruse. And then the New York court said, Hey, why is White Star, which flew all its ships under the British flag, arguing that they should be governed by U.S. law? To which you can imagine White Star's lawyers had a collective panic attack. And that started a chain reaction of appeals that led all the way up to the Supreme Court, believe it or not. Justice Holmes wrote the majority opinion which allowed White Star, despite flying under British flag, to respond to lawsuits in the United States by using United States law. So while the question of whether or not White Star was actually liable was still undecided, the legal documents they had filed to argue for immunity could go forward. So apparently one of the rules of accessing this 1851 law about limiting liability is that all the individual lawsuits either have to be dropped or you have to join them all together to make one big lawsuit. It's not technically a class action, but it did mean that White Star and the courts had to be sure that everyone who had either filed a lawsuit already or intended to file a lawsuit in the future had the opportunity to join. As a result, several hundred additional people came forward to make claims. 
the total claim amount after all these lawsuits were consolidated came to $16 million, or $419 million today. The court divided the claims into four groups, loss of life, loss of property, loss of life and property, and injury and property. Each person who was making a claim filed paperwork to state what they felt they were owed. As a result, the legal documents are frankly fascinating, especially the loss of property documents, again, all accessible in the online records of the National Archive. For example, Margaret Brown, a.k.a. the unsinkable Molly Brown, had a laundry list of fancy, expensive stuff, including a necklace that she valued at $20,000. Today, that would be about half a million dollars. Maybe this whole Heart of the Ocean thing in Titanic was focused on the wrong girl. Kathy Bates being wooed by Leonardo DiCaprio would be a romance for the ages. I mean, just my opinion. My favorite claim will actually make you laugh if you've seen Titanic a Renault brand car that was on the ship, and it was the first ever claim for a car damaged by iceberg. I recently rewatched Titanic for this podcast, and boy, I looked really hard to see if Jack and Rose's love nest was a Renault. It is the only claim for a car on the Titanic, though, so maybe? Not all the claims were long, exhaustive lists of property. Many of the third-class passengers made claims as well, and these were obviously more modest. A man from Hong Kong named... Yum He filed a claim with the courts that included this list of items. Claim of Yum He for $91, which includes the following. Three blankets, one mattress, one suit clothes, one jacket, one bracelet, one watch, underwear, working clothes, four pair boots and shoes, four shirts, one trunk and canvas bag, eight pair stockings, cash, one overcoat, one razor. It's more harrowing when you get into the claims that were classified as loss of life or those who claimed they were physically hurt. Now you're talking about the families of the people who died or the people who survived the Titanic sinking but had serious injuries. For example, Anna McGowan of Chicago jumped from Titanic onto a lifeboat as it was sinking and sustained permanent injuries. This was actually fairly common. I saw several records of people being injured by people landing on them in lifeboats. According to her claim, she suffered from nervous prostration and she just wasn't able to work any longer. And you also have families like the Panula family. The father had already come to the United States from Finland, and his family, his wife and his four children, were traveling on the Titanic to join him. They all perished. Many women, obviously, who had survived the Titanic but had lost their spouse, filed as well. Looking at these documents, you can see the amount people claimed for injury or for loss of life was wildly variable. And it's fair to say this was often based on class differences. And that while some people made detailed lists of what their lost family member earned or would have earned in the future to support the amount of money they believed they were owed, other claimants may have just chosen a number that could have been very high or very low, depending on what they thought was a lot of money. The claims for loss of life were as small as $1,500 and as large as a million dollars and everything in between. Once enough time had passed that everyone felt comfortable that all potential claimants who wanted to join the suit had done so, and this took some time, the petition by White Star was sent to court. This was in June 1915, so several years after the initial petition had been filed. 
Obviously, the survivors did actively pursue during this legal process to prove that White Star had deliberately taken action that led to the collision and that they had many opportunities to avoid hitting the iceberg, not to mention decrease the loss of life. According to court documents, claimants believed that White Star's liability should be unlimited, which could mean huge court verdicts against the company. Sadly, in the end, there was no formal court decision on White Star's liability. White Star was able to come to a settlement one year later in July 1916 and agreed to pay the claimants the amount of $664,000. As part of the settlement, the claimants agreed that White Star had no knowledge of negligence aboard the Titanic. The lawsuit was settled, not with a bang, but with a whimper. From the standpoint of the insurance versus history question, there are winners and losers on both sides of the equation. In the case of Lloyd's, it was sort of both at the same time. The losses from Titanic and overall in 1912 were the largest they had ever been at Lloyd's. But because the various underwriters at Lloyd's and the insurance companies at Lloyd's had successfully paid out the claim on the Titanic in full and within 30 days, this cemented Lloyd's as a reliable insurance entity that could be trusted to pay out claims, even enormous ones, in the future. An article in the Denver Post in 1912 summed it up nicely. Divided as it is, the loss of the newest of the transatlantic liners will not fall heavily on any one man or firm. And today, tomorrow, and continuously thereafter, Lloyds of London will wager you immunity from loss on any proposition you care to submit. This was a reputation Lloyds nurtured for many years, even today, and is part of why they've been so successful and have been around for so long. From a safety standpoint, Titanic's sinking led to several U.S. governmental inquiries and investigations that improved safety standards in the marine industry, including requiring more lifeboats and making sure that a ship's wireless station was always adequately staffed, even at nighttime. An international organization was created to keep track of ice in the Atlantic. That's a win for both history and insurance. And the fact that the 1851 law limiting liability is still on the books, despite a recent attempt in the last 10 years by lawmakers to amend it. I'm sorry to say, but that's a win for insurance, though frankly you may disagree with the law partially or entirely. But all those regulations and the ones that came after can't prevent everything, and there's always risk. While Titanic is still considered one of the top 10 maritime tragedies of the 20th century due to the loss of life, there have been others that were just as bad, if not worse, around the world in the past century. An explosion of a Chinese ship in 1948 resulted in the loss of life of over 3,000 people. That doesn't even count the ships that were lost during various wars and international conflicts. A more well-known event in the last decade, the Costa Concordia, ran aground in 2012 and killed 32 people. But the loss cost a staggering $1.85 billion. It's really a fact that no matter how far we advance in technology, risk will always be there. And hopefully, insurance will be able to soften the blow. A huge thanks to my editor and talented voiceover actor, Zach Stinnett. You should hire him. His information, along with links and book suggestions about this topic in case you're interested in learning more, can be found in my show notes at insuranceversehistory.libsyn.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something.